We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joining the studio this evening by two guests, those being regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Great to be here. And we'll begin with a hush-hush, but wave of the cameras, everybody. Visit to Taiwan this week by a U.S. congressional delegation. The U.S. senators and representatives arrived at Taipei Songshan Airport on board a U.S. C-40 Clipper military transport plane on Tuesday evening. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs confirmed the visit, but it declined to give any details on the length of the stay or itinerary, saying only the trip was arranged by the American Institute in Taiwan and, based on an agreement between Taipei and Washington, it was not going to provide any details of said visit. Members of the delegation, though, were pictured leaving the presidential office in a convoy of sedans and departing from the defence ministry in a bus, where they were seen waving to reporters on Wednesday. And on Thursday, they visited the headquarters of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing and met with officials from the Shenzhou City Government. But neither the central government, TSMC, or the Shenzhou City Government has released any information about those visits. Now, the visiting delegation, reportedly included, and I say reportedly because no one's actually told us who they were, although we've seen photographs of them. Anyway, and included US Senators John Cornyn, Tommy Tuberville, Mike Crapo and Mike Lee, as well as Representative Jake Elsey and another as yet unnamed member. Now, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby also didn't provide any details, but he told reporters in Washington that it's the second such congressional trip to Taiwan this year. And Kirby went on to say that it's not uncommon for congressional delegations to be transported in military aircraft. China, needless to say, got a bit miffed by the visit and announced that its military was basically conducting a combat readiness patrol in the direction of the Taiwan Strait. Chinese officials said that the patrol was aimed at seriously wrong words and actions of relevant countries on the Taiwan issue and the activities of pro-independence forces in Taiwan. So, Brian, a hush-hush visit, but basically, if you knew what they looked like, you knew who these people were. That's right. And so I think this is quite interesting that this was not trumpeted in advance. It was not telegraphed in advance. Uh, for example, this was something the Trump administration was quite fond of doing, of actually announcing this in advance, making it a big PR thing, etc. Whereas Biden, these visits are announced when they happen uh, with short notice or in this case, just kind of after they arrived. So I think the Biden administration is really trying to distinguish its uh, low-key approach from the Trump administration's approach, because this is seen as uh, signaling that U.S.-Taiwan relations are strengthening, but not trying to frame this as not just intended to hit back quickly at China over uh, just U.S.-China tensions. I'd agree with that, actually, that it's it's part of this whole idea that's become coming more to the fore of normalizing interactions with Taiwan and not making a big deal of it. You had the, the members of the European Parliament coming last week, which was, you know, an unprecedented trip by, by MEPs um, that was um, signaled more in advance. But their message at the time was um, we should be having just more a more normal relationship with Taiwan, um, not dependent on what China says. And, and this kind of congressional visit is is part of that. It, it, it doesn't have to be um, a big deal that that um, senators, members of Congress uh, come to Taiwan to speak to their counterparts to you know talk about US-Taiwan policy. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why it has been kept quite hush-hush that um, you know, both administrations in the US and Taiwan don't want to make it um, a big deal. They don't want to make it look like some kind of provocative act. But it's 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 just part of um, of uh, making this more of a regular occurrence. But of course, Brian, 
these Americans that came here weren't actually part of the Biden administration because they were actually all Republicans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's interesting. It's interesting that, A, they took the Biden administration's approach, uh, but then that is not too bipartisan. And it has been noted by Taiwanese media, for example, that these are Republican uh, elected representatives that are more pro-Taiwan, have provoked, proposed uh, pro-Taiwan legislation, etc. And so then this raises the question of what is the Biden administration's current stance on strategic ambiguity, for example. Uh, there are some commentators in Taiwan that reads this visit as a sign that there's a movement towards strategic clarity. However, again, these are not actually people in the Biden administration. And then Biden himself has created confusion with remarks, for example, stating that he and C met and agreed to abide by the Taiwan agreement when there is no such agreement. And then later on stating that the U.S. does have a commitment to back Taiwan when there is no commitment. And so I think this actually adds to the ambiguity there, actually, ambiguity about strategic ambiguity. And Nicola, do you think, I mean, obviously the Tsai administration was happy the Americans came to Taiwan to say hello and talk about whatever the secret things they were they were talking about. But maybe the Tsai administration just said, hang on a minute, you've got a bunch of Republicans coming. Can you possibly send some Democrats as well, just to make it a bit more, you know, a bit more, a bit, a bit freer and a bit nicer for everybody? I mean, I, I, I don't, it's hard to really um, comment on that when we don't know the reason why they were here um, and we don't even know, like we don't have confirmation of exactly who was here. You know, there, there's still, there's supposed to be six members of Congress and one hasn't even been named in, in the press. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it, it shows more of um uh, in the general picture, there were a lot of people who were worried when, when Biden was coming into power that he wouldn't be as robust um, uh, on, his, on Taiwan policy as the Trump administration, that he wouldn't stand up to China on Taiwan's behalf. And I, and I think what this shows, this visit, is that there has been more of a seamless transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration in terms of Taiwan policy that than people initially expected. Um, and you have been seeing, you know, very um, uh, consistent signals from Biden um, that Taiwan is an important partner and that the US uh, will show this solid support for it. I think, you know, they keep using the words rock solid. Um, you saw um, Blinken, the Secretary of State, um, coming out a few weeks ago saying that uh, Taiwan there should be Taiwan should have a more robust and meaningful participation in UN bodies. And I think this is just part of the bigger picture. I mean, um, if no Democrats come to Taiwan, um, you know, over the next year, a few years, then I, I think that would be a problem. But I just don't think that would be the case. I mean, you've got the administration um, being very consistent on its policy towards Taiwan and, and this visit fits into that. I also think it's interesting that um, two of the senators, Mike Crapo and, and John Cornyn, um, were behind the, the Taiwan Deterrence Act um, that was published last week and that, that was talking about um, this potential offer of $2 billion a year to Taiwan in, in for, for foreign military financing um, that would be conditional on Taiwan making certain commitments. And, and you know, according to the local media here, the there was a visit to the Ministry of National Defence. So I would be very interested to, to hear if that was part of the discussion. And of course, Brian, the US Secretary of State on Wednesday, said that basically America and its allies want to have peace ensured in the Taiwan Strait and will take action. But he didn't say what action they would take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think that is uh, another one of those things. I think that, for example, Blinken or the Biden administration is still reluctant to have a much more concrete shift in policy. However, they do have this kind of 
gradual strengthening of, of signals of commitment. Uh, but I'm particularly interested in whether this visit, for example, is part of the internal debate between Democrats and Republicans on on what stance to take regarding Taiwan. I mean, Republicans have sometimes pushed for having something closer to street clarity. And, for example, uh, arms sales to Taiwan or, or further funding would be closer to clarity. And so I think that the composition of this this delegation, that is also noteworthy. Um, it could reflect this kind of internal tension regarding uh, Taiwan policy at present. And moving on, but only slightly, the Ministry of National Defence this week released its ROC National Defence Report 2021, in which it highlighted China's grey zone threats toward the island in an attempt to ultimately achieve its goal of seizing Taiwan without a fight. Now, the report outlines the means of Chinese incursions against Taiwan, threats of cyber warfare and harms of cognitive warfare, and says that grey zone threats frequently posed by China on Taiwan are highly diversified and orchestrated generally through military and non-military approaches. It explains that non military approaches can be seen as Chinese speedboats ramming Taiwan's Coast Guard vessels and its sand pump dredgers illegally operating in Taiwan's waters. And it goes on to stress that the diversified strategies and approaches towards Taiwan are being employed by Beijing to test Taiwan's early warning and response systems and carry out its military intimidation and pressure against the island. Now, release of that report concerning grey zone threats came only days after China's Taiwan Affairs Office released a blacklist of individuals it says will face criminal prosecution for life for stubbornly supporting Taiwan's independence. Now, the list included Premier Su Jung Chang, Legislative Speaker Yoshi Kun and Foreign Minister Joseph Wu. And Taiwan Affairs Office spokeswoman Zhu Fang Lian told reporters in Beijing that her office will enforce punishment on people on the list by not allowing them and their family members to enter China, Hong Kong or Macau. And she went on to say that people on the list would not be permitted to maintain ties with organisations or people from China and that corporate entities providing material support to blacklisted individuals would not be allowed to profit in China. Now, here in Taiwan, the Mainland Affairs Council responded to the list by saying that it's now considering possible legal countermeasures against China to prosecute these Taiwanese people. So, Brian, there we go. Grey zone threats and threats of criminal prosecution for life. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I think it's interesting that there's increased discussion of China's gray zone tactics, because I think oftentimes debate has been framed in terms of an all-out Chinese invasion or just no action by China. But you might have this intermediate action in the future. There's particular concerns about the Patas or Dongsha Islands, uh, Matsu, Jingmen, Penghu, etc. And so you have, in a similar time frame, uh, the Pentagon report that also brought up this possibility. You have this report from the Ministry of National Defense. You have the uh, Reuters uh, kind of very detailed report on possible scenarios for a Chinese military action against China. One. And so I think the Tsai administration is trying to draw more attention to this point that there is this possibility. Uh, you always have these dates floating around 2027, etc. You have Davidson's comments, uh, Admiral Davidson's uh, comments about the potential of a Chinese invasion. But then, you know, th that's framed again only in terms of just invading the Taiwanese mainland, quote unquote, uh, not in terms of intermediate steps that it could take. And just pushing the line that is, I think, what is a concern regarding, for example, frequent air defense identification zone intrusions or sand dredders in Matsu, uh, etc. Or the fact that Ding is literally just kilometers off the coast of China. And I don't think there's been enough discussion of that, particularly because uh, when it comes to electoral politics, a lot of these places do swing pan blue. And so I think that is that is quite interesting. And of course, Nicola, this is going on as there's instances of Belarus being accused of doing the same thing with the migrants on their border with Poland. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't actually made that connection in my mind. But yeah, you're, you're, you're completely right. I, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the Taiwan defense report does um it it does recognize the the kind of the 
the breadth of the threat um, and the rising threat. But I think it still needs to, um, the, the Ministry of National Defence still needs to flesh out more how it's going to tackle um, these threats, particularly grey zone. Um, and there is a, definitely a sense in, in Washington um, that that Taiwan is has not quite um, has not quite found the right defence strategy. That it's not investing enough in asymmetric warfare capabilities, for example. That it, it needs to um, start preparing that the government government and Ministry of National Defence need to start preparing the public more. That they need to do a lot more in terms of reform of civil defence and, and the reserve forces um, and, you know, to, to counter the, the various types of threat that that um, China could um, China could make against Taiwan. Um, and I, I do think that uh, the report itself touches, it, it touches on these things, um, but it doesn't flesh out in detail, um, you know, exactly how, uh, what the doctrine should be about, you know, exactly how Taiwan should invest more in um, kind of more small, uh, cheap, flexible, survivable weapons that, that would really um, pose more of a deterrence to, to China and, and give it pause for thought um, about whether it is going to launch a full-scale invasion or not. And Brian, of course, the China saying it's going to prosecute for life certain people for supporting Taiwan's independence. So obviously Premier Su Jing Chang. I mean, do you think he plans to go to China, Hong Kong, or Macau anytime soon? Yeah, so it's actually one of the funny things um, that these politicians, I think, are already very well aware that they will not go to China. Um, I think it's it's uh, particularly interesting the aspect about targeting relatives, though, because you do have pan green politicians whose relatives still do business in China. Uh, I don't think China really expects to deter politicians from their political activity through relatives doing business in China, but it does sort of raise the stakes if, for example, someone might get arrested or the family member of someone might get arrested in China. Um, what's also interesting to me is I think this is sort of patterned after Magnitsky-style sanctions, actually. Uh, uh, China has raised the possibility in the past of banning Taiwanese independence advocates or banning them from doing business in China. It's very difficult to do that because how do you, you know, create a list of everyone that is in support of Taiwanese independence or somewhere in the scale towards what China perceives as pro-independence, which may not actually be maybe pro-status quo, actually, etc. Uh, but this is a, a thing that China likes to bring up to, I think, uh, frighten Taiwanese to say there will be repercussions for supporting independence. And I think targeting these key figures is a way to kind of scare people, go after a few key figures that are prominent and newsworthy, because you can't actually create this giant list of all these people that are pro-independence or whatever. And of course, Nicola, I mean, threatening people's families, it sounds something like from a gangster movie. Yeah, but we have seen China use those kind of coercive tactics a lot. I mean, that's exactly what's happening to, to Uyghurs who are living abroad and their families are, are being targeted. It's, it's the same with, with Hong Kong. That This is, a, this is a, a tactic that China is you know, not shy of using. Um, and I also think with, um, when it comes to Taiwanese politicians that um, there could be a danger that um, because politicians during election campaigns, they, they rely on, on financing, they need to raise funds. Um, they need um, sponsorship, and there there, there could be um, an issue um, along the line that companies um, who are operating in China might be reluctant to um, to help out with with campaign financing, um, and and that could definitely be uh, used to manipulate Taiwanese domestic politics. And I think that's something that that um, you know the authorities should be aware of. I'm sure they are. But, you know, this kind of attempt to try and engineer politics in, in Taiwan through these kind of 
economic coercive tactics. And we're going to stay with Taiwan-China-related news now as Education Minister Pan Wenjong on Tuesday warned colleges and universities that they're not permitted to engage in activities with Chinese individuals, groups or agencies outside of the confines of current laws. Now, the warning came a day after the National Security Bureau confirmed reports that the Chinese government had established a branch office at the Shenzhou-based National Tsinghua University with the sole aim of poaching Taiwanese integrated circuit talent. Now, according to Pan, any exchanges between tertiary institutions in China, deemed as non-academic are unlawful and are fully in violation of the act governing relations between the people of Taiwan area and the mainland area. And the minister went on to tell reporters that his office has sent notices to colleges and universities island-wide informing them of that. Now, the institute that sparked the warning was founded in Xiamen in 2015 by the National Tsinghua University's Alumni Association in cooperation with the Beijing-based Tsinghua University and the Xiamen city government. And apparently, Brian, it opened an office at the Shinzu University in April of 2016. So it's now 2021 and it opened in 2016. So um, I, I, I take it they must have poached a hell of a lot of people in that time. <laughs> so it's funny because the initial reports did downplay it, at least from the government stance, saying that this was very recent and so it was discovered soon after this occurred, actually. But that does not seem to be the case. And so what's interesting is National Tsinghua University is a major source of engineers for TSMC or semiconductor manufacturing or these critical industries for Taiwan to the global supply chain. And so it's not surprising that for China to try to wean itself off of overdependence on, on Taiwan in these fields, it would try to poach Taiwanese talent because a lot is dependent on the know-how, etc. And this fits with the broader pattern of Chinese United Front activity, uh, particularly targeting young people, for example, young entrepreneurs or working in startups or in the tech industry, uh, but then also going after the semiconductor industry. And so I think uh, it wouldn't be surprising if there are other such organizations. It is not uncommon for Pan Blue organizations to rent facilities on campuses. For example, the Sun Yat-sen School run by Zhang Yat-zhong, the KMT uh, chair candidate, was operating on National Taiwan University and did get in trouble for using the office they rented for political activities. And I think this kind of thing is, it probably applies more broadly elsewhere. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there are more such organizations, but taking action is quite difficult because then the Taiwan administration may be accused of overstepping its grounds, interfering in campus autonomy or in freedoms of speech, etc. So Nicola, do you think this is campus autonomy, as Brian said, or basically Chinese grey zone threats and tactics? Well... Yes, I do think it's part of China's grey zone tactics, but I also just think it's it's market economy as well. I mean, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's no big surprise that, um, that Taiwanese uh, graduates would want to go to a good job. Like, you know, whether that's in China or not, like they would want to go where the economic opportunities are. And that's just economic reality as well as, you know, I'm sure China is leveraging this to its own political advantage. Um, and, you know, it, it does have a huge interest in um, developing its own semiconductor industry and taking that kind of, I, I guess, that power dynamic away from Taiwan. But at the same time, you know, are the, uh, it, what's Taiwan doing to keep its talent and retain uh, the best um, graduates? You know, what economic opportunities is it is it offering to them? You know, are wages high enough? Um, are the promotion prospects good? Um, and so these are all things that Taiwan also has to think about, as well as accusing China of trying to poach the talent. You know, you have to then um, give that talent incentives to stay. Um, and it's inevitable that uh, that China is going to try and, and recruit um, the best graduates. Um, this has been happening for years already. I mean, this isn't a recent thing. Like over the over the past few years, hundreds of thousands of young Taiwanese have gone to China um, because the the job opportunities are just much better. And you know, 
you know, when you when you speak to young people who are there, it's not that the the um, politics just doesn't really come into it. It's just you know how to have a better standard of living, um, how to have better um, promotion prospects, and and Taiwan really does have to look at how. Um, just its own job market and, and wages and um, just, you know, how big companies are run and, you know, often the hierarchical aspect where young people don't feel that they, they have um, the best chance here to progress in their career. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so the, the question then is that this is illegal in terms of campus activity, but what if it was just not conducted on campus? What if, if this was just regular old headhunting? That would not be illegal. If there's not this weird alumni nexus here, maybe that would not actually be illegal. And then what then? And I think that precisely the question is just how to keep Taiwanese talent here when salaries are low, when people are unable to afford housing. Uh, for example, you don't, if you, you didn't eat or drink in Taiwan for 12 years, then you can afford a house in Taipei. Uh, these kind of issues, these structural issues are not addressed even for these critical industries in which there are young people trying to go into them because it does seem like a way of making a stable living. And so these structural issues, I think that's the bigger question at hand. And just I don't see the measures to counteract that. Whenever China, for example, announces incentives intended to lure over Taiwanese young people or entrepreneurs or whoever, Taiwan just announces its own set of incentives in response. But that's not enough. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and in the coronavirus news from here in Taiwan, lest we forget that it's still very much still with us, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday announced that it signed a letter of intent to purchase an oral antiviral drug developed by Merck to treat patients with mild to moderate symptoms of the said coronavirus. Now, according to the Epidemic Command Centre spokesman, Juan Reng Shang, the government will purchase approximately 10,000 courses of the Monopirivir from the US manufacturer. The drug still needs to be granted emergency use authorization, however, by the Food and Drug Administration here in Taiwan because before it can be used to treat patients. And Health Minister Chen Shih-jong, though, is not releasing any information regarding the cost of the purchase or when it could be delivered. But he did say the government is also considering purchasing a similar experimental antiviral drug which is being developed by Pfizer. Meanwhile, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday announced that it's further loosening quarantine rules for fully vaccinated travellers coming to Taiwan for the Lunar New Year holiday next, well, the first week of February. That's when the holiday is, but they'll be coming before then, of course. Anyway, people who have been fully vaccinated for at least two weeks before their arrival will now spend the first seven days of quarantine in a government facility or designated hotel and the remaining seven days of quarantine at home. Now, accepted vaccines will be those approved by either the World Health Organization or the Food and Drug Administration here. All of the travellers, though, must undergo three PCR tests, including one on arrival, another before they return home to continue their quarantine and one more at the end of their 14-day quarantine. They're also required to conduct one rapid test when quarantining at home. Now, during the home quarantine period, they can only stay with family members or relatives who have been fully vaccinated against the virus for at least two weeks and they must not share rooms with other people. Now, family members or relatives who are sharing a residence with them when they're actually undergoing their home quarantine should also observe enhanced self-health management protocols and are required to undergo two rapid tests. Now, interestingly enough, family members who have relatives sharing their residence with them who are undergoing the home quarantine, are banned from visiting crowded places such as markets and restaurants and tourist attractions. So, Brian, what could possibly go wrong with this? 
Yeah, so there's the possibility then that there will be clusters developing as a result of these loosened measures. And so this is, I think, in many ways, a political gamble for the Tsai administration, for the Ministry of uh, Health and Welfare, because there's always the possibility then we will see another outbreak and we'll see pseudo-lockdowns, etc. And whenever there's this kind of increased travel for holidays, there's there's concern about this. And so this is a situation that only recently stabilized. Um, but I think more generally, we are going to see calls for relaxing measures for those vaccinated, for those coming back to Taiwan. And so uh, there's the demand to allow for business travelers, etc. And this is maybe a way of gradually introducing those measures. I think that maybe is actually what the Italian mission has in mind to loosening things at this juncture. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the the, um, the government does have to mentally prepare the public for reopening because, you know, Taiwan has been closed now for it's coming up to two years. The borders have been completely closed with, you know, very strict quarantine and that has really worked. Um, you know, the government can take a lot of credit for keeping um, the virus under control. But there comes a point where you do have to reopen and, and you know, it, the rest of the world is easing its restrictions and Taiwan has to come up with its own strategy and and um, people do have to kind of contemplate that there will be cases. But, um, you know, hopefully by uh, Lunar New Year, the vaccination rates in, in Taiwan will be high. Um, I think, you know, now we're well over 30% double vaccinated, well over 70% single vaccinated. Um, and And... So that will uh, mitigate the risks um, to a certain degree. It, it doesn't, you know, nothing is 100% risk-free. Um, and also, you know, it, it's it's a political gamble to go in the other direction and say, okay, you know, something like tens of thousands of people can't come back for Lunar New Year, even if they're fully vaccinated. And I'm pretty sure there'd be much more of a public outcry over that. Um, and, and, you know, a real... There's already fatigue setting in over the border policies, but it would just be even more amplified by not allowing relatives to to come back for for the holiday. Um, And there just isn't the capacity for quarantine hotels and to keep up the current regime. So you have to find some kind of compromise. And if you look at um, countries like Singapore... Um, you know, Singapore had was similar to Taiwan for much of the pandemic in the way it controlled its borders very tightly, and now it's just it's trying to gradually ease that. Um, it's got one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, and you, yes, you're 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 still seeing you're now seeing thousands of cases a day, but ninety nine percent of those cases are asymptomatic or mild, um, and so I think in, in Taiwan, there is a kind of mental barrier um, and a, still a, a, a fear there of like allowing any cases at all. There's still this, you know, kind of focus on 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 zero COVID, and that's just not going to be realistic going forward. Of course, Brian, like Nicholas said we can expect some cases, but there's a lot of trust needed in this seven days plus seven days, of course, because you've got family members who are banned theoretically from going to restaurants and places such as this, as they got, if they've got family members quarantining with them. And of course, you've got quarantine mem- quarantined people who have just come back to Taiwan, told not to share rooms with people. Mm, yeah, so a lot does depend on that. And so I think uh, what is interesting is that For example, cases of transmission domestically from home quarantines, those have been relatively rare to date. 
Uh, and so I think that is what the CECC is actually banking on, that this does not happen. But there will inevitably be some case of violation when somebody does do this, and that will happen. But I think also then, just looking at the media landscape, there will be social stigmatization of this person. It will become really big in the news, etc. And so I also do think the government is familiar with how this dynamic works, and this might have a discouraging effect on people violating measures. Yet it will happen to some extent, and to what extent that does lead to uh, clusters potentially is still to be seen. But I think gradually you, we will have this. We will have some point in which the government has to kind of take this cost of allowing for uh, just measures to be relaxed with this rate of vaccination having surpassed the U.S., for example, recently. And so I think Lunar New Year is, is, again, just a good opportunity for the government to try and do that. And that's, I think, what is being aimed at here with these measures, which are also then framed as allowing for all these family members to come back and meet their relatives and, and making way for them. And of course, Nicola, Monupiravir. The government is going to buy 10,000 courses of Monupiravir. Obviously, another way to open up Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that could definitely help. I see that the UK has invested heavily in, in these pills as well. And Taiwan, the, the government was uh, criticised last um, earlier this year for, for being slow on um, purchasing vaccines and, you know, falling behind in the queue with, you know, in the middle of a global supply shortage of of vaccines. So I, I think it's it's a good policy to get ahead early on these pills. Um, we don't know everything about them. There are some concerns if they're not used properly that, you know, it, it may... Um, this, it may risk more variants. We just don't know. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons the government didn't um, invest early in vaccines is because they were untested. And sometimes you've just got not untested, but they were, you know, they were new. But sometimes you, you just have to take the risk as well. And and this does seem like it would be um, a good part of an overall strategy in um, accepting that in, in order to get back to normal, that you will have to have... Um, uh, you will have to allow the virus into a certain extent or not allow it, but just accept that it. it will be there. Um, and, you know, if you have the right ways, um, the right means to treat people, um, then it doesn't become such a, a, a huge risk anymore. Um, you, it's just going to be like your regular flu um, and just another disease that everyone just kind of gets on with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, just, uh, for example, concern about imports of remdesivir were quite a large part of CC daily press briefings. And so I think there is this concern from the public about what medicine is available in Taiwan to treat COVID. And calling on the Thai administration to be proactive is, is another policy imperative, uh, that it does have to keep track of what drugs are promising and buy them in order to account for this public demand to be ready for the future, whatever that may bring, new variants, etc. And I also do think that this issue may become politicized regarding the KMT saying, well, you know, you're purchasing the wrong drugs, etc. Uh, similar to how there's all this concern about which vaccines Taiwan had purchased. And so I also can see this becoming an arena of uh, political contestation. But for now, I mean, it's good that the Thai administration is, is you know, trying to be ahead of the ballgame in terms of this. And the first of five televised forums debating the four referendum questions is slated to be held tomorrow in Taipei. The issues set to be put to the vote will be discussed on the Chinese television system network and will, needless to say, cover nuclear power, pork imports, relocating a natural gas terminal and whether future referendums should be held on the same day as major elections. Now the Central Election Commission, says Deputy Economics Minister Tsang Wang Sheng, will be facing off against Huang Shishou, the initiator of the vote to restart the fourth nuclear power plant 
Parliament. Agriculture Minister Chen Chi Jong will be debating the import of pork containing ractopamine with KMT lawmaker Lin Wei Zhou. Deputy Interior Minister Chen Song Yen will be debating the issue of when referendums should be held with former KMT Chair Johnny Jung, while Economics Minister Wang Meihua will be facing off against legal Heart Legal Defence Association Director Chen Xianjiang in regards to the, the locating of a liquefied natural gas terminal in Taoyuan, which is near an algal reef. Now, the other four presentations are scheduled for November the 18th, November the 24th, December the 2nd and December the 11th. Now, the Central Election Commission says an estimated 19.88 million people are eligible to vote in December's national referendums and it's going to establish 17,479 polling stations island-wide to deal with all the people flocking to cast their ballots so brian will you be tuned into your goggle box on saturday or tomorrow our time here uh yeah i mean i think i'm bound to watch this and i mean obligated let's say to watch this and write on it so for better or worse i will be watching um yeah it's a question how much these televised debates really do influence the choice of voting but they are something that happens i think for the interests of transparency and usually more often than not it becomes just squaring off between the pan blue and the pan green camps and so one can see this in, in government ministers versus someone like Huang Shuqiu, who's the former assistant of Hong Xiuzhu, the former KMT chair uh and so these issues are contested uh the KMT is hoping to leverage on this electorally uh it hopes to use referendums uh to benefit itself electorally more in the future, hence the referendum question on the date, whether referendums will be conducted on the same day as elections in the future. Um, but it's framing this as a referendum on the DPP's governance. And so this is a key thing to watch in the lead up to elections next year. And so fighting over these issues, I also think that after the vote, many of these issues will not actually be settled. Um, just for example, there was a vote on nuclear energy before, and we have a vote on nuclear energy again this time, and the issue is really not resolved. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important point that Brian makes that this is this is a referendum on DPP's governance, and I think you know generally speaking that's a problem with referendums, and you know definitely speaking as as a Brit, like that's what we saw with Brexit that it became a lot about um, not so much about the issues in in a lot of ways, but also a, a kind of um, protest against the government, and and I think when you have um, when you have such important issues as uh, pork imports or nuclear power. Um, you know, my personal view is that I, these just aren't um, good issues to put to a referendum when when you can't always guarantee that the facts will be on the table. It's great that, that they're having debates and, you know, it'd be great if lots of people like tune into to those debates and that they are fact based. But certainly with the pork issue, um, I think we've seen a lot of emotion. Uh, we've seen a lot of um uh, politicizing of the issue, uh, the KMT is using it for you know political expediency, but the DPP used did exactly exactly the same a few years ago when it was about beef and ractopamine. Um, so you know this is an issue that could impact um, the country's economy. It could impact um, trade relations with the US, and and I I do question whether it's wise to to put these kind of issues. Um, to a public vote, you know that's why you have elections. You have elections every four years. You know it's a it's a, it's a democratic democratic country. Um, governments are are voted in on a platform of issues, and and I I think that when you put everything that's controversial to a referendum, then how do you govern the country? Like how do you make policy? You know politicians are so distracted by um, these very kind of uh, fiery, intense. Um, debates and you know political gimmicks and and antics um, where it, it disrupts the kind of just general business of government. 
And of course, Brian Nicola mentioned the Brexit referendum there in Britain. I mean, but you, obviously that grabbed the attention of Britain and lots of people got stirred up emotionally about it. But do you see like a majority of the population in Taiwan being stirred emotionally about these referendums? Or do you think a majority of people just go, ah, God, what do I do? <laughs> so I think that's a good question, actually, because, again, just the after the, uh, re- the benchmarks for holding a referendum were lowered by the DPP, it later then split the day that elections were, took place on the day of referendum. And so this time around is really the proving ground of whether it's still possible to meet these benchmarks for a passing a referendum when these two things are now separate. And I think the DPP is counting on just low public interest, perhaps. That, I think, is the strategy it's banking on, is leveraging its supporters to vote this down. In the meantime, the KMT is going all in, framing this as a life-or-death struggle, or that this is the next major electoral battle for the KMT after the Chimboy recall. Um, And so I think the DPP just hopes people will not come out. And I think that is its strategy. Um, in terms of the stances it's taking on, on three of the referenda question out of the four, it is against every other political party in Taiwan currently. And so this is interesting. I mean, a lot of these stances between the DPP in power and the KMT have swapped. Um, but just the, the, the DPP is also going against the pan-green MPP, for example, on three questions. And I think that dynamic is quite interesting. And of course, Nicola, you work for The Telegraph in the UK. Of course, Brexit made global news. China's pushing Taiwan makes global news. Are these referendums sexy enough for The Telegraph? Um, they're a bit too local, I'm afraid, for, like, <laughs> for international media, if I'm honest. Um, but, you know, the, the, big, the bigger questions of um, uh, Taiwan-US trade ties, of course, that's interesting. And that, you know, and that comes into um, the rectopamine debate. Um, the question of uh, nuclear policy, of course, is also internationally important because that feeds into the the um, climate crisis debate and and you know environmental policies overall, um, so yes, the big issues we are definitely interested in the kind of nitty gritty um, uh, debates um, you know between the KMT and the DPP not so much unless the KMT starts throwing pork intestines around <laughs> the parliament again and you know it becomes a story for for all the wrong reasons. Anyway, before we go this week, as global heads of state were still meeting at the COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, the Germany-based environmental and development organisation Germanwatch released its latest climate change performance index and it ranked Taiwan 60th out of 63 countries and also the EU, making it 64. Now... Taiwan was sandwiched between South Korea and Canada. Now, Taiwan last year ranked 57th out of the 57 countries in that index. Now, the index is aimed at enhancing transparency in international climate politics. And its basically rankings are based on the criteria of greenhouse gas emissions, renewable energy, energy use and climate policy. Taiwan's overall rating was considered to be very low as it placed in the bottom 10. But here in Taiwan, the Environmental Protection Administration took umbrage at this and said that basically it's not right. And it said that basically, well, German watch miffed it up somewhat and it argued that Taiwan's population was undercounted by 3 million people, skewing the index's results because half of the indicators are based on per capital calculations. And the EPA here went on to say that German watch not only got the population wrong, but it also showed an increase in Taiwan's total greenhouse gas emissions in 2019 when they actually went down. So, Brian, there we go. Taiwan's not doing too well in the climate change index there, but the EPA denying it. Yeah, so it's not surprising that the Tsai administration would try to defend its record. And this takes place in the context of Tsai vowing, for example, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, and so this this kind of concern about the environment, I think, is interesting because uh, the climate 
change discussion in Taiwan or discussion around environmental issues is not really as tied to international trends regarding global attempts to fight against climate change, international rankings, etc., except when it is used as a way to try to boost Taiwan's international standing, given its marginality and exclusion from international organizations, etc. Uh, and so I wonder if this will have a lead to a larger shift in terms of thinking about these issues and, and how Taiwan is perceived internationally, or if there will be the attempt, for example, to use uh, issues of the environment to boost Taiwan's soft power. And so I think for the Thai administration really trying to benefit Taiwan's environmental image, that might actually be a question worth considering. Um, so Nicola, it was, we came at the bottom, we're angry. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's also an anchor though at Taiwan's exclusion from, um, you know, major decisions and, and COP26. And that's a legitimate, that's legitimate anger. Um, of course, Taiwan has to do more um, to tackle the climate crisis. You know, every country does. Um, uh, but I, I did see that, you know, on that report that... Taiwan did rank higher when it comes to climate um, climate policy, um, so that is a good start, and it, it does, as you know, as Brian said, um, indicate a recognition that that a lot more needs to be done, and that the government is like taking that seriously. But it's just not it's just not a credible um, it, it's just not a credible situation for Taiwan to keep being excluded from global decisions on um, climate change. I mean, the Washington Post um, recently said that the Taiwanese gas house, gas, um, greenhouse gas emissions account for 0.75% of the global total, which is roughly equivalent to Spain. And so you can't then, you can't, you know, in the overall total of, of UN, figure, uh, UN global data, Taiwan has just been left out. And you can't with a country that size. I mean, it, it's just not feasible. And it, it it, it skews the overall figures. So there, that really has to be addressed by the international community as well. Um, you know, Taiwan has to be brought into the discussions, not just be on the margins, uh, you know, kind of trying to catch up on officials like over, over a cup of coffee at a climate change summit. Um, so, you know, that's something that the, the international community really needs to recognise. It was in Glasgow, so it would have been a pint of heavy. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> or iron brew. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so I think um, just regarding that, I, I think there has to be more deep thinking about this. I think it returns to a lot of structural issues regarding development in, in Taiwan. I mean, we have these problems of air pollution worsening in, in central and southern Taiwan. And uh, just unfortunately, there there is a, a push to do action on this for voting domestically. But in terms of just calling industry to account, I, I don't know if these measures actually uh, are, are are binding. Because in the the issue, I think, is particularly governments in Taiwan always have incentive to try to keep industry in, in Taiwan, prevent them from going to China, etc., and that that owes is is the bind I think regarding that, and so I think I think these uh, dilemmas are still unresolved. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh, good night, and Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.